So as I told the, I think I told the kids, maybe I didn't, but as a child, this was my very favorite church story every year. In the lectionary that most churches have used for decades, this is always the story on the Sunday after Easter, every year. And I loved it. Being Catholic, I had had to stand for Gospels that grew longer and longer and longer during Lent. But I would feel deeply rewarded and ready to stand as long as it took to hear this story. Why? Well, because I'm sort of like Thomas. First of all, I'm tactile. I want to touch things. Fruit in the grocery store, fabrics in the clothing store, leaves and flower petals in the garden, water in the lakes and oceans. I just seem to need to touch things to get the full experience. So as a child, I could always relate to Thomas. But I also felt bad for him. Everyone else got to be there that first evening of Easter and see Jesus resurrected, talk with him, get blessed by him. And Thomas, he was supposed to just take their word for it, and it seemed so unfair to me, like he had been cheated. Until, of course, Jesus showed up the next week and Thomas was there. And he did get to see and talk and touch. But I also suppose if we get right down to it, I was a bit jealous of Thomas because he did get to see the risen Christ stand next to the risen miracle. And, of course, I didn't. I was expected to believe based on what Thomas said, and I didn't think that was fair. I also didn't think it was fair that Thomas was often labeled doubting Thomas. Because, I mean, really, the others doubted just as well, right? They didn't believe when they first saw Jesus show up in the locked room. The Bible is very clear. After he said, peace be with you, after he showed them his hands and his side, then they saw him, meaning then they recognized him and were filled with joy and, I'm sure, a bit of awe. My point is, none of them jumped on the resurrection bandwagon without seeing for themselves. So why was it that poor Thomas ended up with this label of doubting Thomas? I have always felt a much better label would be declaring Thomas, because he is the first to boldly proclaim and declare the resurrected Jesus, my Lord and my God. Maybe you remember some of the other times that Thomas appears in this Gospel of John's. He's always the, well, okay then, resolved sort of guy. He makes his first appearance in the story about Lazarus. Jesus is planning to head through very dangerous territory to get to Lazarus, and the others are trying to talk him out of it. They're afraid. But resolute Thomas simply says, well, let's get going then, and that way we can all die together. Later, when Jesus is telling them about the many rooms in God's mansion and that they know the way to get there, Thomas is the one, the only one, who says, uh, wait a minute, I don't have a clue what you're talking about, and I have no idea how to get there. He would be the one sitting in a committee meeting in the dark who would finally say, uh, guys, shouldn't we turn the lights on? He states the obvious. He questions what everyone else wants to question, but he is also all in. He has stuck with Jesus through this whole crazy journey, and he just wants to see what everyone else has seen. That seems fair to me. Here's where John gives us another one of the vivid stories that reveal Jesus 
reveal God, and perhaps reveal ourselves to us in deeper and more complete ways. An abundance of the best wine you've ever tasted flowing out of water jugs at a wedding that was ready to go south. Sight restored to a man born blind. A woman at a well of living water. The raising of the dead, Lazarus. John shows us Jesus in relationship with others in such a unique way. The people in these stories spring to life themselves. They are real and questioning and longing just like us. And I think that for me is what is so appealing because we can see ourselves in John's stories. We are Martha and Mary begging Jesus to come quickly and heal our ill brother. We are the guests at the wedding watching as his mother raises her eyebrows and inserts her will. We are that woman at the well who longs for more out of life, who wonders, is this all there really is? And we are Thomas, who struggles and wonders with the mystery of resurrection, who only wants to have what the others had, a chance to see the risen Christ. Earlier in the day, as I said, Mary Magdalene had been to the gravesite, found the tomb empty, and then mistook the risen Jesus for the gardener. She goes running to proclaim to the others, I have seen the Lord, but they don't know what to make of her claim. And so in fear and disbelief, they hide out and lock themselves away. And now later that day, Jesus appears among them in this locked room, shows them the scars of his death, breathes the Holy Spirit into them, and sends them out as he has been sent. And poor Thomas misses out. And later these others repeat Mary's refrain to him. We have seen the Lord. That would really tick me off. But like them, Thomas doesn't believe it either until he is also given his own chance to see the Lord. So Mary sees and declares, I have seen the Lord, but no one believes her. Then those disbelievers see and they declare, we have seen the Lord, but Thomas doesn't believe them. And then Thomas sees and he declares, my Lord and my God. And then, that is where the story becomes ours, friends. The author John tells us all these things are written down so that we, we are the readers, that we will believe. And in believing, we will also find abundant life. And then we become part of the chain. We are added onto that long list of those who have seen and believed and those happy ones who have not seen yet still believe. Thomas is the continuation of the pattern of Christian discipleship that plays out in John. A person encounters Jesus and they have a choice to make. Will they believe? Will they enter into relationship with him? If so, then they share that experience with another. And the next one might believe or they might not. But those who believe continue to share the story. Others come to encounter Jesus and then they continue the pattern. Come and see is the refrain in John from the calling of the disciples at the beginning to the woman at the well who shares her story with the town folk. Come and see. For these folks, an encounter with Jesus leads to an irresistible need to tell others about it, to declare like Mary did, I have seen the Lord, and to call Jesus my Lord and my God as Thomas does. Yes, 
Some, like Thomas and Mary, got to see firsthand. Others, like us, rely on their experience and their testimony. And we hear the words this morning that assure us that all these things were written down just for us, so that even though we cannot see firsthand, we too can believe, and in the believing, find our own abundant life in relationship with the living Christ. And the risen Christ calls us the happy ones, the blessed ones, who have not seen yet come to belief. Now for me, a beautiful nugget of this is buried deep in the actual Greek of verse 31. It's nuanced, but I think it's important. These things are written down so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ. That you will believe is actually a very incomplete translation. It is not limited to the future possibility as our English language indicates. A much more accurate paraphrase would be, these things are written down for those yet to believe, that they will come to believe, as well as sustaining those who currently believe. Do you hear the dual purpose in that? That is the entire purpose of John's gospel to bring us to belief, meaning into real relationship with the word made flesh, and then to sustain us in that belief, in that relationship. And so as I said, we are now part of John's gospel. Those who have not seen but believe because of all these things that are written down. And so now, friends, now it is up to us to share that good news, to shout to others we have seen the Lord, to call out and say, come and see, to pass that faith on to others. Well, how do we do that, you might ask me? There are many, many ways, but the simplest of that is in the faith formation of our children. When they are brought into church to be baptized, we as adult Christians promise to aid in their faith development. We promise to assist their parents who present them for baptism in passing on the faith. We promise that this is a group effort, that we are all responsible for sharing Thomas's declaration that the risen Christ is our Lord and our God. And so, I am so excited to share with you a new addition to our children's faith formation here at PCWS. On Wednesday, Session unanimously approved a motion to create a special space within the sanctuary for our children to participate in learning the ways of worship during the summer months this year when there is no Sunday school. The space will be located at the front of the sanctuary, perhaps even on the chancel. It will be outfitted with child-sized furniture, table and chairs and rug. There will be children's Bibles, storybooks, manipulatives like Play-Doh and pipe cleaners, drawing materials and craft items, as well as a few adults to sit with them. Children will begin worship as they do now, sitting with their families or whomever brought them to church. They will continue to be invited to the front pew to listen to the scripture and then move to the chancel steps for their children's sermon, as we have been doing all school year. But after their sermon, they will be invited to this dedicated space for the longer sermon. And in that space, they will be able to draw or build something they might hear in the sermon. They might want to mold some of the characters they hear talked about or draw out the story. Perhaps they will read the story in a children's Bible or another storybook. And after the sermon, they may stay there or they can return to the pews and sit with the adults who brought them to church. 
Why are we doing this? Well, as I mentioned, we are part of the lineage of Thomas and the other disciples. Jesus told them, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you. And so Jesus sends us as well. We are charged with testifying to this Jesus, this risen Christ. We are charged with passing on the faith. And children are a part of the body of Christ. Theologically, we are not complete when they are missing from the worshiping body. Jesus told the disciples in another gospel to let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. He also said to us adults, unless we become like little children, we cannot enter the kingdom of God. Clearly, children and adults together have a place in the kingdom of God. You may recall that at the top of the list of the desires that the pastor nominating committee collected from us was a focus on families and children. What better way to show how important they are to us than to create intentional space for all in sanctuary? Research shows that growing vital churches are those that have the most intergenerational activities, including intergenerational worship. And that does not mean all ages simply sitting next to each other in the pews. Intergenerational worship is worship that is engaging and meaningful on all levels for all ages. Okay, what will this mean for worship? Well, it will be a bit different. It may be a tad noisier. There will certainly be more movement as children are encouraged to move around the sanctuary. It may be a bit more chaotic in a Holy Spirit on the move kind of way. And it may be more joyful, more engaging, and more spontaneous for all of us. The world of children has changed drastically since most of us sat at a desk from nine to three beginning at the age of six. Today's classrooms are active, busy places where children learn to work collaboratively, they move around with freedom, and they are more likely to be found working together at tables than sitting at a single desk. Our hope is to create a similar learning environment for them here in our sanctuary for this summer. A place that will feel comfortable and familiar to them, a place that they feel they belong in. Where did we get this idea from? Well, the playground movement, playground, has been growing over the past 12 to 15 years, and it can be found in churches of every denomination around the globe as a way for all of God's children to worship together. We often wonder in our own denomination why so many children fall away from worship as they become teens. And yet we must admit that we also do not have a good history in the Presbyterian tradition of teaching children how to worship and letting them experience all of worship. In many children's eyes, worship is something adults do. Sunday school is what kids do. By the way, we're going to call our playground the grace space. Now, what is needed from the congregation? Well, we will need to be tolerant and flexible in our expectations. We will need to be supportive of our young parents who might worry that their children are being disruptive, assuring them 
that their children are actually bringing a completeness to our worship. Placing the children up front is not for us to be able to observe them or have them on show, but for them to be where the action is, allowing them to see the movements of the spirit and the service, take in the unique elements of worship spaces and furniture. The better they can see, the more engaged they can be. When will we start all of this? Well, June 4th is our target date. Sunday school ends on May 28th this year, and so that next Sunday, we will commission and bless our grace space for this summer's passing on the faith. My dream is that over the summer months, we will start building in our children the sorts of experiences that lead to the memories like I shared with you of my own childhood church days. I'm sure you all have your own special memories. Our dream for our children as we pass on the faith in a myriad of ways is that they too will someday be able to declare the risen Lord their God. That they too will declare with Mary and the other disciples and us, we have seen the Lord. Because once you have seen the Lord, either literally or through belief in your heart, you are changed. You are filled with joy. You are no longer defeated by the trials of life. You know nothing in the world can shake you, not even death. That is the good news. And of course we want this for our children. Our prayer is that they will get a bit of it as we pass on the faith in this summer's grace space. As one of our parents said to me about this idea, I am so very excited about these summer plans, and my heart swells with joy that such a focus is on the children of this church. Amen. It is so. Amen. <laughs>